We come now again to the Gospel of John. We're working our way verse by verse through this Gospel, but we've kind of stalled. (laughs) We've stalled at a verse. And we come now to our third look at verse 16 of John chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. It's the most famous verse in the world. It is a verse that contains within it why we believe what we believe as Christians. It was Luther, you remember, who said that it is an entire forest bound up in a tiny acorn. It is, you recall, a verse that I've broken up into four parts. Four parts that will serve to reveal to us the glory of God. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? What is that that we see? Do we see a Shekinah cloud of gold? No. What do we see? How is it that we see the glory of God? We see the face of Jesus. We, we have been those, believers are those, where God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, has turned the lights on. By grace, that we would then be able to see the knowledge of God revealed to us in the face of Jesus. And do we see the face of Jesus? Does he walk around on this earth any longer at present? He will soon in a day to come, but is he right now? And so how is it that we then see the face of Jesus? How is it that we see the glory, behold the glory of God? By going to the one place, His glory is beheld. The Word of God. That's where we are face to face with the glory of God. Did I not say to you, Jesus said, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. We will be able to apprehend and comprehend who God is because prior to Jesus coming... In his incarnation, John chapter 1, you recall, says, No one, in verse 18, has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus has come. The children of God, by grace, have received the new birth. And having received the new birth, take their first breath, which is a trust in Jesus, are then united to Jesus, and then know God. There's a lot of people born into this world, but only the children of God know God. There's a lot of talk about privilege, privilege, this and that. Well, we are. The most privileged people in the world. You got worries? Allow that to allay some of them. You you struggle with joy? Allow that to fuel joy. I just wanted to say that. That's not in my notes. I just wanted to say that. Because that's just so true the glory of God to behold 
And these four parts in verse 16 reveal to us the glory of God so that we might behold Him and adore Him and marvel at His covenant love. Now I say the word covenant because covenant means it is a very specific love. As the children of God, we are in covenant with a covenant keeping God. Hesed. Loving kindness, royal covenant love. John 3.16 reveals to us that very specific covenant love. Not some general love of benevolence and beneficence, which I know you know by now. We'll go through that again very quickly. It's not talking about some general benevolent love. It's talking about a covenant complacent love. And his covenant plan. A very special plan. All of that is revealed to us in this packed little verse. We've seen first under that first heading. You remember the love. Sorry, the God who loved at the very beginning of verse 16. For God so loved. We looked at that. And we did see those three vital categories we must have for God's love. Why do we need those? Because it helps us understand the full comprehensive nature of God's love, a God who is love. You remember we saw number one, God's love of benevolence, which speaks of God desiring all, desiring good for all. Psalm 145 verse 9, for example, says Yahweh is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. You remember that? Then you had God's love of beneficence, which speaks of God doing good to all. He doesn't just desire good and then just do good because that's removed from his love. No, that is the very essence of his love. He does good to all and he desires good to all because he is a God who is love. Matthew 5.45, for example, says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the righteous and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There was the first two categories. And then you had third. That strange word to us. The word complacency. God's love of complacency. That remember speaks of a special love of delight. That God has for his son. Because God can only delight in that which is delightful. God can only love that which is lovely. And a world under the guilt of sin because we inherited Adam's sin nature and Adam's sin guilt is not lovely. God would be unholy to look upon the world with a love of complacency. R.C. Sproul rightly called that blasphemy. I hope you understand that. I'm freestyling a little bit today. (laughs) I got to stay here. You see, that love of complacency does speak of that special love that God has for His Son. Meaning that as you and I are united to the Son by grace, through faith, the grace part being regeneration, the new birth, then made willing to put faith in Christ as we are then united to Christ, the Lord Jesus, by faith, we are then objects of that special love. Because there's nothing in you and I that can be an object of that love of complacency without being united to Christ. 
And so we are united to Christ. And that kind of love is exclusive to only those within the confines of such a love. The love between the Father and the Son is the love in which we are made partakers in. It's a love fixed only upon believers. Last Lord's Day, in our second look at this verse, we saw under heading number two, the world who sins. That was from verse 16b. For God so loved the world. The world. Here we saw the object of God's love was the world. I pointed out that the word world, cosmos in the Greek, is used approximately 15 different ways in John's writings. And that while the word world is certainly a general term, the context determines its meaning. You remember that? I gave you an example. Look at verse 17. I want to show you that again. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So you have first into the world, that's referring to the creation, the actual earth. Then second, to judge the world, obviously referring to humanity as considered altogether lost in unbelief and under the guilt of sin. And then third, but that the world might be saved through him. Not all the world is saved. And so clearly this is referencing believers, three uses of the same general word that each have a non-general meaning because of the context same word different meaning also brought out last lord's day i believe importantly so why john uses the word world here not in general terms why he takes a non-general word and uses it in a non-general term of a, he wasn't intending that he wasn't referring to all without exception meaning just everyone and the two reasons were that Number one, the gospel message is for all people throughout the world in that the world is bigger than simply just the Jewish ethnicity, but includes all other ethnicities. Because remember, verse 16 cannot be removed from verse 15 and the entire conversation that just took place with Nicodemus. You cannot take verse 16 and just put it on your fridge. It, it cannot be removed from what just took place and what just took place is in verse 15 Jesus said whoever Nicodemus whoever and when Nicodemus heard that that is striking to him because why he believed that the Jewish ethnicity alone would inherit eternal life solely based on their ethnicity and Dr. MacArthur I heard him call Nicodemus a racist for that <laughs> and there's a slither of truth in so that was the first reason that the gospel message goes out. That's why John's using the word world there. And the second one was to emphasize that the gospel message is for the undeserving in that the world is full of sins, corruption, and guilt. The entire of humanity of the world is under sin's guilt. Which is all to say that the world is big. It's bigger than just the Jews. And the world is bad. It's full of undeserving people. I then took you to a host of passages that show that it is in no way at all unusual for the children of God to be spoken of as the world. Showed you a number of passages from that. There's also, there were also some implications and applications from that. I want to encourage you to pick up any of the prior messages online that you've missed and you, or if you want to just digest them some more. But for now, let's read verse 16 again together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And so we've seen, number one, the God who loved in verse 16a. We've seen the world who sins in verse 16b. Each of those portions have revealed to us more of the glory of God to behold. As that covenant love that I mentioned and the covenant plan have been laid bare for us to see. And now we turn our attention to yet another facet of glory revealed. Under the third heading, serving as another cog, driving us deeper still, which is number three, the son who died, the son who died in verses six in verse 16 C. You'll recall last Sunday that we would begin to, I mentioned that we would begin to unearth a translation, an amplified translation of John 3.16. We'll add a little bit more to that this morning as we dive into this next portion of the verse. But let me put to you what we have already in an amplified form once again as we begin. And so first in verse 16, we have God, that's the Father, so, which you No, by now isn't the word so, but simply a word that means way or method or the manner. God, the Father, in this way, loved the world, a world which is big, not just Jewish ethnicity, but all ethnicities, and a world which is bad, and that it's made up of a humanity under the judgment of sin. And this morning we'll add to that from the words that he gave his only begotten son. That's our focus this morning. That he gave his only begotten son. So we run into this next portion. It speaks of the son who died. And so we run into this with clear eyes and a bit of momentum. Let me point out that the motivation for sending the son into the world was the immense love of God. The object we know of the immense love of God was the world. And what we're given now is the subject. We see now the subject, the son. And it's the Son who makes evident the enormity of the love of God. Because if you think about it, just as it was considered a major display of Abraham's love for God by being willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac, so too, yet on a scale far more grand, is God the Father's love made evident In the giving of his own son. And this morning I want us to think deeply. Upon three. Remarkable truths. Pertaining to the giving of the son. Into the world by the father. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Three remarkable truths. Pertaining to the giving of the son. Into the world by the father. The Father. What we'll see in verse 16c, those words that he gave his only begotten Son, are number one, that the Son is eternally begotten. We'll see that the Son subsists. That's a very interesting word. Subsists in a hypostatic union. The Son subsists in a hypostatic union. And then third, the Son completes an actual atonement. Let's read verse 16 one more time. For God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not wait for eternal life until when you pass away, but have present possession eternal life. We'll see. The first thing we notice here is those words he gave. He gave. He being the father gave his son. The word gave in the Greek conveys the idea of relinquishing. Relinquishing in order to sacrifice. The father did not send the son into the world primarily as a moral example to follow. Which is probably how the vast majority of unbelievers view Jesus. Just another example to follow. The primary reason the father sent the son was to fulfill the mission given to the son before time began. We've looked at that for months, even years now. Places like Titus 1, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 1, 9 make this abundantly clear. That before time began, salvation was planned by the triune Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father sends the Son to fulfill the mission given to the Son. Which was to what? Accomplish redemption. Accomplish redemption. Not for the world without exception. That's universalism. That's a heresy. But for the world without distinction. What is meant by that? Namely... That it was for more than just the Jews. But it was for the elect. Who themselves, you and I, in our unregenerate state, were part of the entire world's humanity under the guilt of sin. Jesus prayed about this plan. In John chapter 17 verse 9 which says... I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me. That may be really hard. But that's what Jesus said. So the son comes into the world. With the primary aim of actually accomplishing redemption. Not, not making redemption possible. But actually accomplishing redemption. And as I've stressed really over years now. Jesus not only died for our sin. But he lived for our righteousness. He endured the temptations. And the mockeries and the soul anguishing trials. And in his living, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law because the law required righteousness, and you and I could never fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and he fulfilled them on our behalf. 
And if you sit there as a new covenant believer, which we are, and say, well, I wasn't under the law. Yeah, but there needs to be some place a righteousness comes from because there's none in you and I. In his living and in his dying on our behalf. He purchased our redemption, our righteousness, our sanctification, our holiness. We really are a people most blessed. He lived and he died. He died enduring the wrath of the Father's righteous justice on our behalf. And when we think of all that, we would do well to keep both love and justice in harmony with each other and not negating one at the expense of the other. Because if we simply think of Christ's work on our behalf solely as fulfilling justice and righteousness, then we fail to apprehend how Christ's work was also an expression of the immense love of God. We need both. It cannot just be all love, love, love. And it cannot be just simply all justice, justice, justice. Instead, the sending of the Son is the majestic combination of both the love and the holy justice of God. And so let's look now at the first of three truths pertaining to the giving of the Son into the world by the Father. First one is the Son is eternally begotten. John calls the Lord Jesus that in this verse. His only begotten son. This phrase is debated. We certainly don't have time to go into all of that, but the basic gist of it is this. Does the phrase mean only begotten or does the phrase mean one and only unique son? Only begotten or eternally begotten or just only son? Some of you are sitting there with an ESV and it just says only son. In fact, there's only a handful, small handful, three translations, I believe, NAS being one of them, that kept the word begotten in there. A lot of ink is spilt in academia on this. And the reason why has a little bit to do with the second earliest Christian creed written in 325 AD. It's called the Nicene Creed. And rather than quote it for you, I printed it up this morning and it's out there on the information table. And I would love for you to grab a copy after the service and take it home and read it. We would do well to be more creedal. We would do very well to be more creedal. It was named after the city in which the council that formed it took place. And what marks the earliest of this creed is its strong affirmation it makes regarding the deity of the Son, the deity of the Son, the Lord Jesus. An excellent article I read during the week highlights that what makes this Nicene Creed so stellar is not simply that it affirms the deity of Christ, but that it affirms the way in which the Son possesses deity. You know the difference between the two? It's not so stellar because it affirms the deity of Christ, but that it affirms 
the way in which the Son possesses deity. And the way the creed does that is by emphasizing that not just the one and only unique Son is whom Jesus is, but by actually being the begotten Son. That word begotten is tremendously important. Because the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, a phrase that I'll unpack in a moment, then He possesses the same divine essence and nature as the Father. If we just flatten it out like the NIV and the ESV translations have done, for example, and just say only Son or, uh, or one and only Son, then we sideline the important truth that the word begotten is trying to convey, which is the way in which the Son possesses deity, the divine nature. We have said the word begotten our entire Christian life. But do we know what it means? Have we just said it because it's a word we say? Or do we actually know what it means? Why did the NASB, for example, and a few others keep the word begotten in there? Was it to merely be traditional? No, it was to be theological. The early church grasped the importance of all this. Listen to a small portion of the Nicene Creed. It says this, we believe in one Lord Jesus, Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds God from God true light uh, sorry light from light true God from true God begotten not made of one being with the father to say that the son is eternally begotten and that he is before all worlds is to teach what is called the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son eternal generation of the son now i'll unpack that for you a little bit generation is just the latin word for begotten <laughs> or begetting and as it pertains to humans as humans we live inside of the constraints of time a human father begets a son or a daughter. And before the child is born into the world, the father and the mother, for a moment in time, literally exist before the child does. Right? Mum, dad, no kids, kids don't exist. Then kids exist. Mum and dad existed before the kids in time. The same cannot be said of God the Father and the and God the Son, their relationship. That's why we use the word eternal. Eternally begotten. When it comes to the Son. Because the begetting of the Son is not the same as when a human father begets a human son. As I said, there is a time when a human father exists and his child does not. God the Father's begetting of the Son transcends time. And as the Nicene Creed confesses, the Son was eternally begotten of the Father before all 
the worlds or before time is what that's conveying there. And before you just think this is just pointless, the early church understood the necessity of these things. Not only to affirm Jesus the Son having a divine, a divine nature, but also how He has a divine nature. And that is that the divine nature, which is not derived from anywhere, but from He who is in Himself, Life, the divine essence, comes from the Father to the Son. It's mind-bending. It's mind-altering. And in many ways, we cannot truly grasp it fully because we're using finite minds to peek into infinite realities. But if you turn with me to John chapter 5 and look at verse 26 for a moment, we have to do something with this verse, verse 26. We can't just leave it. In many ways, we can't just rely upon ourselves to understand it. Look what Jesus says. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He, that's the Father, gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. The more you think about that, the more insane it sounds. But it's not. From this, we can say that the Son is all He is because of, the, of all the Father is. The Son was always eternally in possession of divine nature. Don't take that verse to say otherwise. The Son was always in possession of the divine nature. It wasn't as though the Son was lacking anything and then the Father gave the Son deity. That's not what that verse is saying. When we talk about divine essence and the communication of divine essence from the Father to the Son, these are ways to explain not only that the Son is divine in nature and essence, but also to distinguish between the persons. You see, before the Son came into the world, the triune Godhead was in eternity. And if you don't have some kind of term... <laughs> I think Spurgeon said they're words we use to cover our ignorance. We just need terms, but don't belittle the terms. The terms in and of themselves are important. But we need terms to be able to distinguish in eternity the persons. They existed eternally, but they are distinct. This is important. They Distinguish between the persons and they emphasize the eternality of the Son. And this is fundamentally important. This is exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and all the other cults do not do. He is the unique and only Son because He is the eternally begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To be the only begotten Son means that He alone is the only one who has been generated, begotten by the Father and granted life in Himself by the Father. It's mind-altering, mind-bending, and 
we can't comprehend the depths of it with our finite minds. So don't, I'm like you right now. I don't really understand it. So be it, it's okay. But the depths of it are immense. Because the Father, He, he is not begotten of anyone. The Father begets none. The Son is begotten of the Father, and then the Spirit proceeds forth, we're told. Proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. But it's not as though you have the Father, and then He just kind of, and then the Son comes, and then they both go, and then the Spirit comes. No, they've eternally existed. But we need to distinguish between the persons. It's immense, and it is intense. It's Trinitarian theology. And so first, this Son that is sent into the world, given by the Love to the world, given by the love the Father has for the world, from whom every elect child of God is on the receiving end of such a love, the Son is eternally begotten. He's granted all that He is by the Father in eternity past, all while having Himself existed eternally. (laughs) He is, as the Nicene Creed says, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made. We don't believe that Jesus assumed the role of a son at the incarnation. That is called incarnational sonship, and it's wrong. We believe that the son existed eternally. The second remarkable truth pertaining to the giving of the son into the world by the father we see here, is number two, is that the son in his incarnation... That is, when he came into the world, subsists. (laughs) I don't like using these words sometimes. I tried to use exist, but you can't use exist because the word subsist is deeper than the word exist. And I'll explain that in a moment. But the son subsists in a hypostatic union. When he came into the world in his incarnation, he does so in subsisting in a hypostatic union. In 325 AD, when the Nicene Creed was penned, the emphasis, with the emphasis on Jesus being divine, as we made mention of, how he possesses that divinity, which is that it comes from having been granted to him from the Father, as we read in verse 26, where the divine essence is eternally communicated to the Son from the Father. I have to add that without it being heresy. It's very easy to be a heretic when you talk about this stuff. I have to add that. It's mind-bending. But it's vital to the faith. It's vital to an accurate Christology. Christology means the doctrine of the Son. Well, in 451 AD, there was yet another council that met and then penned what is called the Chalcedonian Creed. So you have the Nicene Creed, and then you have the Chalcedonian Creed. I printed up the Chalcedonian Creed. It's available for you. There are only one-page documents. It's on the information table. Please grab a copy, take it home, and read it. These, These are like... Historic creeds, crucial. This creed emphasized that Jesus was at the same time both human and divine. That is what is meant by hypostatic union. Where the two natures of Christ the Son, why did Christ have two natures? Because of both the divine nature and the human nature. Nature, being in union, right? The God-man. Now, this existed 
the Chalcedonian Creed will say, without any confusion between the two, as though there's overlap, without any change in the two, as though Jesus is sometimes God and then sometimes man, when he entered into the world, without division, because you cannot separate them. And so the hypostatic union is not the same as the virgin birth. And it's not the same as the incarnation. The incarnation refers to the whole idea of God taking on human flesh. That's the incarnation. The virgin birth was the vehicle by which the incarnation occurred. It was the miraculous vehicle. The hypostatic union came about as a result of those two. (laughs) The virgin birth and the incarnation. And so what you are left with is the Son who is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. And yet He does not exist as two persons. Instead, when the Son entered into the world, sent from the Father, when He takes on human flesh, He is therefore one person with Two natures, the divine and the human. And when we understand that it is the Son who alone in the Trinity possesses two natures, that's a true statement. In the Trinity, the Son alone possesses two natures. The Father didn't come into the world. The Spirit didn't take on human flesh. So only the Son possesses two natures. And when we understand that, we can then understand why the Son alone possesses two wills. Two wills. And I want you to see something on this in a couple of places. So turn with me to John chapter 17. I really hope we finish today. I'm not going to keep you late, but look at John chapter 17. And look at verse 24. This is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. The other one, they call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not. That's called the model prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. That right there is the divine will of the Son. He has two wills. He has a divine will and a human will. That right there is revealing to us the divine will by this hearkening back, as it were, to eternity past before the foundation of the world. Have you ever read John chapter 17? The entire chapter is that prayer and thought that Jesus seems to be changing locations sometimes, saying things in this prayer that speak of the past, the present, and the future. He does. Before he even, look, 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 at, um, look at verse uh, 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He hadn't even gone to the cross yet. He says in verse 24, look there again, that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. He is 
praying that his people whom he has redeemed will be with him where he is, that they may be with me where I am. But he said this on earth. He said this on earth. How can he say that when he is on earth in this world? Because his divine will is not bound by time. But transcends time, is above time, is eternal, is in eternal glory. That's that's a peek there into the Trinitarian divine will of the Son. It's a divine will. What about the human will? Well, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, he certainly, instead of expressing his divine will, Jesus expressed his human will. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. They came to a place named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and troubled. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That there is Jesus conforming his human will to the Father's will. There are other times when these two wills play out. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Just forward a couple of pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 2 and look at verse 40. This is Jesus up in the temple. He's a young child. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover And when he had become 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents were unaware of it. You know this, Mary and Joseph, they couldn't find him. Then look at verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so in his divine will and nature, Jesus the Son was astonishing the people with his understanding, his wisdom. And his knowledge of the divine scriptures. He was speaking there from his divine will. But then look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. In subjection to them. Here is Jesus' human will being expressed. As he submits his human will to his parents. And then verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Verse 52 shows us that the human will was a genuine reality. And as he kept growing in favor with God and with men, he did so by exercising his divine will and submitting his human will. So the son who was sent by God was the God man and he needed to be truly God and he needed to be truly man for being God. If you think about it. For being God, he could then atone for more than just one person. If he was just man, 
He could only atone for one other person. I could only be your substitute. One of you. You could only be mine. But being God who is infinite means that Jesus can be an infinite atonement for a number of people that man cannot count. And then being man, he could act as our substitute. If he was unlike us in any way, he couldn't be our substitute on the cross. As he lived, he was tempted in all ways that we were, yet was without sin. As he lived, he kept the demands of the law perfectly. He fulfilled right, the righteousness that we couldn't fulfill. As he lived, by, he by his works, by his life, earned righteousness we could never earn. As he lived, he preached the kingdom of God is at hand and now is the time for salvation. And as he lived, he revealed the heart of the Father to us. One of compassion and mercy. The third and final truth now, pertaining to the giving of the Son into the world by the Father. We've seen, number one, that the Son is eternally begotten. We've seen that the Son lives or subsists in a hypostatic union. Now we must consider also that the Son completes an actual atonement. Back to John 3.16. We see from John 3.16 that the Son was given... That he gave his only begotten son. He was given. He was sent. According to Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 32. He was not spared. You remember? He wasn't spared. God didn't hold him back. He was sent into the world. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. What's the will? That all that he has given me. I don't lose. The son came and lived to purchase righteousness on our behalf. The son died to purchase redemption and holiness on our behalf. And whether we like it or not, he did so for all those to whom were given to him by the Father. When were they given? They were given in eternity past, before time began. And it was those, and it was those alone for whom Jesus lived and died for. Because if there was anything meritous in Jesus' life and in his dying, for anyone who spends an eternity in hell, that's just erroneous. There's nothing meritous. That is applied to anyone who is in the agonies of hell. What I'm unfolding here is not a theological bias. It's not a theological favorite. It's not a theological theory. This is the revealed will of God. According to the scripture. Jesus' atonement was effectual. It was actual. It was always intended to accomplish what the Father and the Son had made a pact of in eternity. J.I. Packer, who went to be with the Lord recently, he remarked incredibly well when he said, and listen carefully here, 
Quote, God's saving purpose in the death of his son was not a mere ineffectual wish depending for its fulfillment on man's willingness to believe so that for all God could do, Christ might have died and none have been saved at all. The Bible sees the cross as revealing God's power to save, not his impotence. Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe. But a real salvation for his own chosen people. His precious blood really does save. I'll tell J.I. that he made me cry one day. Its saving power does not depend on faith being added to it. Mark that down. The saving power of the eternal Son of God shed upon the cross does not depend if faith is added to it. Its saving power is such that faith flows from it. The cross secured the full salvation of all from whom Christ died. End quote. You see, it was not the view of the early church who wrote the first creeds. The Apostles' Creed being the first one. It was not the view of the early church. When you read the book of Acts and romanticize about the book of Acts, this was not their view that... And it wasn't the view of the reformers, and it wasn't the view of the Puritans, and it wasn't the view of the modern missions movement, it wasn't the view of the last hundred years, that Jesus died to provide salvation for all, yet failed to secure it for anyone in particular. That has not been the view of the church. But it's become the predominant view of the church today. That's exactly that. That Jesus died to provide salvation for all and yet failed to secure salvation for anyone in particular. Because of such a weak, pathetic gospel that is preached for so long. And you know one of the heartbeats of that pathetic, weak gospel? Is when people understand whosoever, in verse 3.16, to pertain to some type of ability... That a person possesses in and of themselves to believe. No. We're at the bottom of the ocean, remember? No life raft. What, what does a life raft do to a person at the bottom of the ocean? And why I say life raft is because modern evangelism is that you're floating lost out in the sea and then we throw you a life raft and you within your own capability and capacity and ability grab hold of that life raft and then you are saved. Or some other pathetic weak example where, where God has voted for you, Satan has voted against you and then it's up to you whosoever to cast the final vote. 
That is modern evangelism. That is not the view of the early church, never the view of the reformers, certainly wasn't the view of the Puritans, absolutely was not the view of the modern missions movement who went out to the very corners of the world. Instead, the clear teaching of Scripture is that the Son whom the Father did not spare, but sent into the world in order to fulfill the plan that was made before time was, by actually accomplishing and completing salvation for all those who were given to the Son by the Father. You say, well, the other one, the other view... That ignites evangelism, makes me want to get out there and I can convince people to believe. No, no, no. You cannot make a dead man live. This understanding that the Father was sent into the world to fulfill the plan, this understanding does not extinguish missions and evangelism. It ignites it. Why was the greatest missions movement the world has ever seen? Why, why did they all hold to this? An actual atonement. Why, why did they? Because they realized that it, 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 it does not extinguish evangelism. It ignites it. Why does it ignite it? Because out there in a big bad world. Big because there are ethnicities all over the world. Bad because everyone in the world is under the judgment of God. The reason it ignites missions and evangelism is because when those people who were given in eternity past truly hear the gospel message. They will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because they will, by God's sovereign grace and grand design, receive the new birth prior yet basically simultaneously, in order that they might be spiritually awakened from their spiritually dead state as God uses the instrumental means of salvation. And what are the instrumental means of salvation? His people. You and I. Who have received saving grace. Telling others of saving grace. The sovereignty of God in salvation guarantees our missions and evangelism. It guarantees it. Because the call goes out to all. And then those who receive the new birth come in. These high truths of John 3.16 don't simply flood the head, they flood the heart. Mind, affections, will, actions. Fill your mind with the knowledge of God. Plumb the depths of the Word of God. Then you know God. And then what happens when you know Him? Your affections are elevated. And then what happens when your affections are elevated? Your will then wants to live for Him. Actions. Yes, at the cross, it was God's love of complacency and God's justice so perfect and holy. It's where they collide. Sin's curse and the guilt of sin separated mankind from a holy God. And only trust in the eternal Son sent from the Father satisfies 
the perfect and holy justice. If you are a believer here this morning, what should fill your heart and mind? What should fill your heart and mind? The fact that from the Father's love came the Son who through his living and his dying satisfied the perfect justice that hung over you and then you were flooded with every spiritual blessing which includes the grace-filled ability to see the glory of God. Again, John chapter 11 verse 40. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Listen to this most beautiful verse, and then we're done, by the Apostle John. 1 John 5, verse 20. This is for you, Christian. We know, we, believers, know that the Son of God has come. And in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. We truly are the most privileged people in the world. People want to attack privilege. Well, attack us because we're the most privileged people in the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. But the only begotten God. The Son, who is in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. Are you thankful today? If you're not a believer here this morning, if you've not trusted in Christ for salvation and not tasted the sweetness of this Christian life as a child of the one true God, then today, right now, is your time. Come on in. Just come on in. By a simple trust. In the death, the burial, and that glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for this time. Lord, would you take, would you take your servant's words? I pray, Father, they align with your will. Would you take them by the power of your Holy Spirit and the revealed will of your word and sanctify saints and save sinners. To do a mighty work here this morning, far abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. I pray, Lord, that you have attended the preaching by your spirit this morning. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God and we believe that he moves among us and pray, Father, that you would send him to do a work of sanctification and salvation. And for my dear brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, comfort us with these truths. Help us to grasp the enormity of your love for us, that out of an overflow of that appreciation for the love that you have for us, we might live for you. And all God's people said,